0: Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 19th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm joined once again with Roger, and today we will be talking why exactly do we as humans procrastinate? In recent years, there has been a flood of self help literature that advises us how to better organize our calendars, set up routines, wake up early, create daily, weekly, and yearly goals. While all of these techniques are extremely helpful in better managing our time, a question that is often overlooked is why? Why we choose not to do the things that we most want to accomplish? Lamenting the fact that we simply don't have any time and that life is just so busy and so engrossing that we can't possibly fit in all the things we wish to achieve and yet, Time has a funny habit of continually ticking on regardless of whether we are involved in the things that we wish to achieve or some other mindless pursuit. Touching back on my last conversation with Roger on order and chaos, it might also be wise to summarize the impact of chaotic and unknown forces which might encroach upon our time in the form of loved ones and longtime friends. Roger Given your psychology background and investigation into this literature, what do you think is causing us not to pursue the things we want most out of life outside the scope of simple time management?
1: So, yeah, some of the things that I think we often fail to account is almost as always ourselves. We tend to not really account for our motivations or why we actually want the things we say we want. So it's pretty easy. For us to actually say what we want, to express our desires it doesn't really cost us much. But if it was that easy, you know we would actually always achieve everything we want. A lot of times, we, it's quite easy to say that we want things, but quite hard to actually get them. And exactly, especially when I was getting my degree, one of the main maxim maxims that my professor taught that one of my professors taught us was that we're lazy and we like to feel good. And that <laughs> I axiom, think that's true, and, and that axiom can actually help explain a lot of human behavior, right? Like a lot of it is evolutionarily, ev- evolution-wise, we're designed to conserve energy, which makes sense. Like food is pretty scarce in the natural world, and it's a lot of work to to secure food. So, the less energy we're burning, the less wasteful we're being with the with that whole cycle. And we like to feel good. So in other words, anything that we've evolved that gives us a sensation of pleasure naturally tends to be a benefit to some extent, whether it be sex, food, rest, you know, all all of those tend to have some intrinsic benefit to our survival. And that's kind of the general platform we're playing with. So anytime someone sets a goal, I think the biggest question always has to be, well, how is, how high of a priority is that goal? And how does that goal compare or compete against all your other needs and drives that you're, that you're naturally doing already, right?
0: So I love this. So we are, our factory setting, if we're all televisions here, and our factory setting is pleasure and laziness because that's that, that, that has served us well in our, our survival, so to speak. So it's really hard because anytime you're trying to change the settings on a TV, kind of have to read the instruction manual you have to kind of play around it's kind of easier to just leave things on the default setting so when we're trying to incorporate higher goals into our life it does take some finagling
1: right and you also want to consider that when it it comes to like laziness or pleasure though the reason we find those pleasurable the the reason we even are attracted to those is because there's already intrinsic benefit right like being lazy means that Unless it's really worth it, you're likely not going to bother doing it, right? Be you know seeking out sexual pleasure is naturally going to increase your of your chances of reproducing. Seeking out gorging on food when we're as we're evolving was always a good thing. If you were in a situation where you could eat a lot of food, it's like hey, you don't know when that, when the next time that's going to be. Jump in. So we're to some extent we have some predisposition, personality can you know, and temperament can really change that among different people. There's some people that cannot be lazy, super like hyper conscientious people will, will literally feel negative emotion when they, when they aren't doing anything. Those are your busy bodies. And they're also people that are amazing at work, but for the most part, they're not the ones that struggle with goals. They're the ones that will set the goal, pass the goal, make another one, you know, like they, they have, they don't have that problem, but a lot of times lower conscientious people can really struggle with setting up goals mostly cuz it's you're you're fighting against a lot of other competing goals that you may not even know you're already following that tends to be the biggest one of the biggest
0: hurdles so we have to all accept that Sex and food is always going to come first. Even, I mean, even for these like highly conscientious people who love to work, to some degree, I think they still have to overcome that. Like, I don't think they're asexual, and they're just like, "I am a robot. I must go to work and work hard." You know, like I, I think there's always that layer of having to overcome the more basely desires in order to achieve anything in this world. So I, I think accepting that those are our base desires, and they in some way have to be you know i'm not saying like overcome in the sense that like i no longer have sexual urges but in, in the sense that i can table my urges to the side momentarily so i can achieve this thing i want to do
1: right and I, by no means am i saying that we're all just you know driven by our by our instincts but it's more a matter of sure maybe some people there's definitely people that are asexual that just have no interest in it for a variety of reasons, rational, sexuality, all those different reasons. Nobody can rationalize their way out of food, right? That's just a necessity for survival, right? Like you have yeah. to have that. So therefore, like, I don't care what the system, like, I don't care what other goal you have. The minute you're hungry, that's going to start taking priority. The minute you're thirsty, that's going to start taking priority. And a lot of people kind of just push that away as just like, ah, well, you know, those are just your basic maintenance things. It's like, okay. But after you get out past those basic ones, what's, what other ones are you also having? Are you having, do you need two to three hours of watching YouTube? Do you need your favorite TV show to -hmm. make you feel more relaxed? Does that calm your anxiety? Because another thing that a lot of people don't tend to consider is if you want to achieve your goal, there has to be something else that you're already doing that you're currently spending your time on. That's going to have to be sacrificed. Yes. No, it's, it's just the, the fact is you have 24 hours. Yes. You've already been using those 24 hours on something. So if you want to use them on something else, there's something that you're currently doing that you have to stop
0: doing. I want to talk about ambience for a moment. So, and this is an argument that I get into with my girlfriend all the time. So she'll say something like, I can't read this book because it's just not the right time like i i need to be in a relaxed state or i need to have the right music in the background or it has to be quiet in here whereas i'm like just pick up the book and read it just there's no there's no such thing as like the perfect time to do anything in this world you just have to just do it and not really think twice and then like that's why I always find myself reading books on the subway like the subway is the worst possible place to read a book it is noisy it is loud it smells bad and you're surrounded by people but I'm like if you just get into the state of saying there's there's no perfect ambience to do anything I think that makes you a lot more productive how do, how do you feel about that Roger
1: Oh, I would say I'm more sympathetic to to your girlfriend in that end because, (laughs) well, for me, because I have ADD, like there's certain situations. I I can remember even in college, I remember one time someone pulled the fire alarm in the library and it was really, really early, turned it off. Not a big deal. You know, slight distraction, whatever. Everyone went back to studying. And I I remember trying to study. And at the very, very end of this library, it's a huge, huge college library, but at the very end, probably at least you know, a hundred feet away, one of the, one of the fire alarm blinkers just kept blinking, like flashing. Huh. And I could not study in that room anymore.
0: That's interesting.
1: It, it, and the I, for me, from my perspective, what was happening is I, w- I would try, to, I was studying philosophy for my philosophy class. And every time I would get like, three or four sentences in start to formulate thoughts. And then the blink, I would notice the blinking in my peripherals and my entire mind would go blank. And I would orient to, to exactly that thing. Even though I already knew it was there, I knew it was coming. I could not ignore it. Like it was impossible for me to ignore it. Just constantly put, bring my head up and distract me. So, so for me, I think there are those things, but I think if it's one of those situations where you're you're already screwed, so you need to have to you have to deal with the problem, right? So for me, the things that I've learned is okay. If there's any ambient noises, I need to completely get rid of them. So I normally get like a noise canceling headphones. I have a, a soundtrack that this, that like I'll play that's made for ADD that literally just hmm. disorients any other sounds. So if someone's talking or something, it gets, makes the voice really choppy. So you can't really tell what they're saying. So it's easier to ignore. Oftentimes when I am going to do a lot of work, I isolate myself from everyone and everything else, put myself in a, in a very secluded corner, right. but it's one of those things where yeah, for me reading, um, it was like, I started taking some medication for, for my DD. But before that, if I tried to read on the bus, I couldn't, it was impossible. Like I would not, I wouldn't even get past the first page with medication. It got a little bit better. I was able to, you know, read, but even then, like I still, it, it's, it's almost like an orienting, the orientation reflex is so much stronger with people with ADD just because it's a, it's like a hypersensitivity to anything new, anything unexpected. And I, I look at other people and they can just be, you know, <laughs> there could be a fight breaking out next to them and they're still engrossed in their book. And I, I'm, I'm very jealous about that. I think that's an amazing skill that I just simply don't have.
0: Uh, no, thank you for sharing that. I think, I think that helps because I I definitely have a selfish theory of mind and, and I think that's going to better help me um, relate to my girlfriend and be a little more sympathetic to her. Yeah, well, I, I, I want to, think of it think of it this way as well and I've also found myself guilty and this is kind of like the distinction I want to make because I think the things that you just said about the AD uh, you know having ADD and 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 the flashing light distracting you sometimes though in in my life I, I can be hyper focused but sometimes there's at the subconscious level I really don't wanna do something. And I know that me and you both have in common the GRE, which is the bane Mm -hmm. of humanity. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes when I was studying for the GRE, I would start cleaning before, before I would sit down. I'd be like, Oh man, this, this table's too messy. Or, you know what, let me, let me clean the kitchen right now. If I could just clean the kitchen or I could just sweep the floor, or I could just do X, Y, and Z. Or if I, if I got the right classical music in the background, I would say to myself, and then I would spend 30 minutes on YouTube going through all these classical playlists until I found like the right classical music. And I, I, I think that there is a component, there is like, you know, having ADD, is, is real, like that's totally real. But I also think that there are mental blockages. Like when we don't wanna do something, we do everything in our power to find excuses and we find everything in our power to kind of blame the ambience because we, oh, yeah. we're kind of not where we kind of don't want to do that unpleasant thing.
1: No. Yeah. I, I would definitely also agree with that. Like there's definitely situations and, and it's well documented in everything is that whenever you put humans in a situation where they feel like they have to do something, but they don't want to do something. A lot of times they'll find, they'll do some rationalization of some sort. So we've all done this where it's like, oh, I could do it tomorrow. Ah, oh, well, like, I don't, I don't need to do it now. Or, uh, oh, that, you know what it's not as important as i was telling myself and and that's like the first level the second level is okay well i would do that if i had x y and z and it's the the toolbox problem of like i'm go oh right i could do that except i'm missing this so i you know once i'll get that then you know do that and then the next level from that is okay i could do that right now i don't have any excuses not to do that so i'm going to do something i also don't like but i'd like to do I'd still prefer to do that than this because yeah. this is the thing I least like to like my room has never been cleaner than when I've had to study for the GRE, (laughs) like, right. Like it's, it's it is spotless. Like I I don't
0: like, and you don't like, I don't like to clean. So if I'm cleaning (laughs) to avoid something, you know, that that thing is really bad. Yeah. Well, and and, and like for me, I'm like,
1: I'm not a very organized person. So the fact that like everything has to be perfectly tidy before (laughs) I study, I'm like, okay, why, why do I, and and it's, it's this constant need. Like another example of this is fussing in the military where, you know, especially in like older military stories, you'd hear about men in the middle of a battle or in the middle of a surprise attack. They'll like go and start doing some extremely tedious thing. Like they'll start clearing, cleaning a gun or they'll start, you know, fussing with their gear or something like that. And it's this idea of like something really bad that you want to completely avoid is happening. So therefore you find something else to keep yourself busy and rationalize that this is actually the most important thing you need to be doing. And then it kind of distracts you from the, on from the negative or unpleasant thing that you're trying to avoid. And it can go from an extreme and it's almost like a a coping mechanism, not just for like extreme like in war, but even just like mundane things that we just don't want to put ourselves through. It's just we find something else to keep ourselves busy instead.
0: I like that. Because I, I think with the with the war I think that's a great example with the uh the guy of, you know, fine tuning his gun before a huge battle is that I think that the fear and the unpleasantry of thinking about that battle is is so overwhelming and would just shut that person down into a state of shock that they have to come up with this sort of mindless ritual, pacify their mind from actually thinking about that thing that is so scary. So like cleaning that gun is just their way of surviving because if their thoughts just went on to the reality of like, oh my God, I could lose my legs or get blown up by this by this huge bomb that goes off, they they would just freak out they would just shut down as a human being
1: yeah well it, and it goes back to our conversation about managing and dealing with chaos and the unknown right like the the unknown is actually always there and it's not it's just that we don't see it because we don't need to see it it's not something that's currently affecting us but once that manifests itself for example like the GRE the unknown there is like the entire, your entire future, right? You don't know how good it is. You don't know how bad it is. You don't, even though rationally you may say it's like the more time I spend here and the more effort I put in here, the better off I'm going to be. It there's, there's another aspect of you that kind of wants to be like, well, maybe if we just never look, that's irrelevant information, right? If we never find out if we're a failure, then we, then by definition, you don't actually know if you're a failure right? And then you never were a failure because you never tried. So you kind of just save yourself that negative aspect, but you know, the positive being that, or the negative aspect of that though being, well, yeah, but you also never know if you actually could could pull off whatever it is, whatever goal you're trying to achieve. So that goes back to our procrastination talk about there's also a natural drive for the fear to avoid the possibility of failure.
0: I like that. So, so in other words, people are more content with the unknown, this idea of, I could be a genius at the GRE and and score in the 90th percentile, or I could score in the 20th percentile. I would rather just live with the uncertainty of, like, it's like a Schrodinger's cat, basically. I'm either a genius or I am not so good at this kind of quantitative stuff. I'm happy with my identity just being in the unknown realm. And once I take the test, then I'm either going to be remarkably proficient at this thing or a dunce at it. And it's better just to not know that and sort of live in this well, state of mystery.
1: Well, because more, more like when you're going in, like we can, take, we can just stay with the GRE, right? Like, because I think that's a good example. What the GRE is ex- explicitly is, is a judge. Yes. Right? It is a judge of you, it's a judge of you in one very explicit uh, dimension or two, I guess, if that's what they claim. But the issue is that dimension then determines if you're able to enter into the academic elites that then give the best options for a possible future, right? Or some of the best options for the possible future. So then what does the GRE actually represent? It doesn't just represent, you know, how good you are at high school math and general vocabulary that you'll never use. It represents, do we, does society think you are good enough to be in a place that gives you extra education and more accreditation that then allows you to have a better life, uh, like, life status or
0: power um, and influence too. Yeah, so we well, get to an all, Ivy league college all,
1: all the things that humans desire basically. Right. It's yeah. like, do you deserve, it's, it's the equivalent to like a promotion in life. It's like, do you deserve to even be considered for this? Are you even good enough to be, are you good enough for us to think that maybe you could pull it off? It's essentially what that is. And so then what that becomes is a judge. So then the next question is, is like, well, wow. What if, what if we're wrong? What if you take that test and it tells you score like a one hundred and forty on yeah. both sections, right? And now, now what does that say about you?
0: It, I could it, speak to that actually. Um, <laughs> I've so I've actually taken the GRE a number of times, and and I believe me, I put my best foot forward. I studied for months on end, nonstop, like every single day, seven days a week. You know, two to three hours a day with classical music and so forth, and. I always score really badly on it. So by society's metric, like I'm labeled a failure and so forth. But here's the thing, though. I actually am glad that I've taken the test so many times and that I'm not living in a state of uncertainty because I'm glad to know that, hey, this is a real limitation about myself or this is a real thing that exists about me. And that has actually allowed me to come to terms with acceptance and sort of pursue other vehicles and pursue other things where I might be in the 90th percentile of something else. So I think, I think for me at least, even though plunging into that uncertainty has led to some negative, a negative outcome, it's actually a net positive because then it gives you a, a universal truth about yourself.
1: Right. And, and that's the, that's the, that's the argument that the truth will always set you free, right? It's like, that's the, that's the argument that of why we generally like and value the truth. However, the truth, the truth of the matter is most of us are terrified of that. And most of us, most of us don't actually like that. And there's a good reason. Like I mentioned before, we're lazy and we like to feel good, right? So if that's the case, what's the exact opposite of that? Something that's a lot of work and makes us feel miserable. Okay. If you bust your ass to study for the GRE and you throw, every, you know that for you, it's the best that you got, and then it comes back negative, there's a couple of things that happen. But one is you may not have expected that of yourself. You may have always been... Like And this often happens. Is you may have always been the smartest guy in the class. You right. may have always been the, the most clever. Everyone always compliments you. It's like, man, you're, 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 you really got a good head on you, man. You're, you're really clever. You're really smart. Sure. So your whole entire identity and perception of yourself and how you see yourself and what you see as your future and your past is as that. I and like there, that. And then there's this marker, right? That society as a whole has already agreed is, a, is supposed to dictate, at least the university system has that dictates whether you'll be good at this or not right and then it tells you oh yeah you thought you thought that yeah you're actually wrong well what does that mean right like now now it's like okay does that mean my perception of myself was completely wrong and therefore everyone else was also wrong and therefore were they lying to me and like all these new questions arise all this new chaos all this new unknown information and unknown possibility starts to arise not just for your future as in holy shit. Well, like I wanted to do this, you know, advanced degree, but maybe I'm not even smart enough to do it anymore. Maybe I was never smart enough to do it. Maybe I would just spent all this time thinking I was someone I wasn't, you know, and all that collapses. But then when you look to your past is all these people that thought I was smart, all these, you know, what did what, how do I make sense of all this? Did they just think, am I a fraud? Hmm. Did they just think, Think that I was smart, but I wasn't. Or were they dumber than than me to the point where they couldn't even tell that I was dumb too? Like, you know, like <laughs> you have all these different questions that arise that completely challenge everything, and and so all that is in that it's, it's for example in that score, and that's that score is just one example, right? Of of this chaos and what chaos can actually change within your life, and you know that before you ever take the test, you know that before you study for the test, you know that that's a possibility. And so therefore, we also have to account for the idea that, well, a part of you is really, really scared that that can happen. And a part of you is naturally going to want to avoid that entire possibility. Because if you just never take the test, hey, you can always think that you're still a smart guy and you you don't have to question yourself. You don't have to challenge all these things, right? So you don't have to actually put yourself out there in a vulnerable position where you then have to, you might have to reassess everything you've believed about yourself.
0: Absolutely. You know, absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. It's almost as if procrastination allows us to preserve our self identity. Because if 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 I pro if let's say I procrastinate from taking the GRE, I can still believe that I am a genius, I, I can still continue believing that. And I don't have to worry about going into the light of truth or whatever and being exposed as something other than that. And, and, and that, that, that is, I think the most fear, I think that's the thing that we fear the most in this world is events or tests that are going to shatter our our worldview and our self identity. I think, I think that is a means of procrastination. Like if I do this thing and I fail at it, well, now I have to reinvent my whole self. And that, that's like, that's a, that's an ungodly puzzle. It's an ungodly mess. Well, And I I would,
1: I would take it further. I would say that's what all goals are. All goals are judges. Because once you've said once you've set a goal, what you're essentially saying is, I want to do this, this is worth doing, and it's what I should do. And then when you don't do it, what does that say about you? right like right. that's that's why like new year's resolutions are so rough sometimes right you'll be like okay new year new me this time no <laughs> bullshit i really need to get healthy i really am going to start working out better i'm going to take care of myself and then within 2 months you're doing the exact same thing you've been doing for the past 5 years right like you you didn't change yeah only now you feel guilty now you feel like you actually failed even though yes. the past 5 years you've been doing the exact same thing this time it's like you've been doing the exact same thing only this time, you know, like you can't hide from it anymore. You know, this was not what you wanted. You yes. know, you wanted something different and you failed. Now it's a failure. Before it was the norm. Now you're failing. And I think that's why that's the the dark side of goals that we, that we don't acknowledge because we don't acknowledge it. We, we sometimes just ignore it. And then it happens to us. And we're really confused as to like why we feel like shit. And it's like, well, because you need to account for all of it.
0: You know, what's funny though, is that, I, I, I think with the New Year's resolution thing that you just gave, it, it's this idea that if I never studied at all for the GRE and I and I decided to opt into the unknown world, right, I would actually feel like more of a failure living in a state of unknown, like in the unknown realm, because I'd be like, well, I, I, I never tried that. Who knows what could have happened? But the fact that I tried it and failed at it, I actually don't feel like a failure at all. I actually sleep very well at night saying, yeah, I can honestly look myself in the mirror and know that I tried my absolute best at that. And now that, that is a lesson that I know of myself. And it's not, it's not, it's only a failure if I never tried, but because I tried, I still sleep extremely well at night.
1: Right. And it it goes back to the, to the, like Peterson's Peter Pan myth, this idea of like, it's very, very tempting to just keep your potential. Rather than face the fact that not all potentials are available to you,
0: right? yes, yes, like for
1: you, like for you, taking the GRE and maybe you know you had certain goals and dreams and then hitting that a wall and being like, oh, okay, well maybe I'm not going to have this arbitrary skill set that they're requiring for this program that likely doesn't have much of a connection to the actual skills that they're training. For. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? like, but but nevertheless, but nevertheless, it is an obstacle that I can't that like I can't pass in the way that they expect me to do it. Sure. All right. Well, then now I know there's no more point in me wasting energy trying to think about something I'm not going to be able to attain. Now I have a better understanding of myself because I know what options are available to me and I have a better understanding of what skill sets I do have and I don't have. And even if you learn about your limitations, you that that's a good thing to know because otherwise you won't account for that and put yourself in situations where you're not accounting for those limitations. But now you're like, okay, well, I'm this kind of person. What kind of person can, do I want to be with these, with these sets? And then like, it's like, okay, well, actually I think that you create a new goal. That's, that's, that's actually more fine tuned to what it is that you can and want to be. Right. And it's kind of, it makes us both, but before you got got there, you have to expose yourself to that pain, right? You have to expose yourself to the reality of like that current little fantasy you have about what you think you're going to be before you take that test might have to die Yes, they might it might have does. to die a painful death and then from and and that's the that's the cyclical phoenix right like re, like death re- rebirth yes like the the the, the Jungian idea of like the the self-sacrificing hero this idea of like you create a sub personality that sub personality is an adaptive it's it's a way to adapt to the environment up until it becomes insufficient or it's not it's not enough to get you to a certain problem so that part has to be sacrificed and a new one has to be built and each time that's a painful process it's a pain it's it's the pain of learning something new that you didn't that you part of you didn't want to learn right like you're like oh okay yeah i'm gonna have to change some things around now (laughs) I, I, i
0: think and it's it's you know it's actually looking at death in a very positive light because yeah. I think death is the only way forward. Because if you, like, let's say I had this vision of of, of Aaron as an Ivy League Harvard professor. Let's just say that that was my vision of myself. I think that allowing that vision to die by taking the appropriate steps and then failing at those appropriate steps creates death and there's there's definitely a period of mourning you know you're not going to recover from that you know in 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 a, in a week so you have your period of mourning of like okay Ivy League Aaron professor that's never that's not that doesn't that doesn't exist but the positive thing is after your mourning period that then allows you to be like okay well, what is the vision of Aaron that that, that I should be striving for? And let's go ahead and take a bunch of steps to get in that direction. And maybe that will fail. And then we have to find another Aaron. And this is actually a really fun process. I I actually find it immensely fun that you constantly keep climbing up the skyscraper. You keep climbing up these mountains until you die. And then once you get game over – then you find another mountain to climb until you get game over again.
1: Well, yeah. And, and this, this idea keeps getting, people keep coming at it from different angles. Like the, the Greeks had the Sisyphus myth yeah. and then Camus, you know, existential view was like, yeah, we should imagine ourselves a Sisyphus. Only it's not torture. It's pleasurable. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, it always is. It's a cyclical cycle of struggling to get to the top, struggling to get to the top. When you get to the top, yeah, well, now that you've, like, from Young's perspective, it's like, now that you've mastered the thing, well, now you've learned everything that's there, but you you've never actually learned enough to fully win at the game of life. There's always going to be a new dynamic or challenge that you're not going to be able to account for. So there's always a necessity for that mastery to be sacrificed and for you to come back basically as the trickster right as the person that is fumbling and you know causing trouble both for yourself and for everyone else because you don't know what you're doing so like yeah you may have this huge idea of like this professor that you want to get to and then you just hit this wall and now everything that had gone into all those fantasies all those dreams of you wanting to be that have to be fully let go Yes, yes yes and Another way you can see that is when you hit that, your mapping of what reality was, was wrong. Yes, it was. Chaos comes in. Now you're, because it's always been there, right? Like nothing, nothing's changed. The only thing that changed is you realize just how chaotic the world around you actually is. You realize that what you thought, you're like, oh, I got this. I got this order. I'm going to take this test. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. It's like, nope, you didn't get past that first marker. Okay, well now what? I don't know. Well, what does that mean? Well, if I don't know, I have no idea what's coming. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do next. I have no idea what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. I have no idea what any of this looks like. <laughs> and so your anxiety kicks up and we see it with all different kinds of like unexpected events, right? People dying, um, injuries, just getting fired. You know, just all those always put you in, like you said, that state of mourning of the state of like, I have no idea what the hell I'm going to do. And you just kind of have to like sit at home in your room in the dark for a bit and like mull everything over and process everything and come up with a new plan and be like, well, maybe I want to do this or maybe. And you have to rebuild that structure again.
0: I think, you know, it's funny, you know, we talk about the period of mourning. I I think that if there was ever a time in your life where it's okay to like chill and watch some Netflix, I think the period of mourning (laughs) is okay. Like, like I, you know, I'm very on the, like be on the up and up, but, I think that you owe yourself. And again, if you're like, I'm not encouraging your period of mourning to go on for five years and like, you don't have right, a yeah. point of time, but give yourself a month or something. And in that morning, like I, I use it as a solemn thing, but it's also a period where you're searching for the next mountain to climb. So use that period of mourning to watch things that are very, or read things that are very engaging. And then you're like, Hmm, maybe that's the new mountain that I should be climbing and then start mapping a vision of what you look like on top of that new mountain. So I I think even in that morning period, there's still something quasi productive going on because you're looking, it's like, it's like imagine going on a vacation and you're looking at all the places to visit. You're sort of looking at all the places that you could take your life and you're envisioning what that would look like with you in it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, Perfect. That's exactly because that's exactly what I think is going on. I, I think it's easy for us to kind of beat ourselves up whenever your plans collapse and you're just kind of like licking your wounds at home. And it's like, well, no, what you're read what you're actually doing is you're trying to re remap your entire world in a safe place. Yeah. So one of the reasons why we lock ourselves up, get comfort, food, and then <laughs> and then watch TV or read stories, it's like, well, we're looking for everything that just happened. One, we're looking for security. Okay. Yes. In my home where I know I'm safe, eating foods that I like. It's like, okay, lazy would like to feel good. So that fits, right? Like we're, we're perfect. Yeah, we're giving ourselves everything we naturally always want. It's like, okay, well, what's next? It's like, well, we can't just always be like, and here's the problem. When you're in the underworld, which is, you know, what this would like from the hero's journey, what it would be is like that, that descent into the underworld, that descent into hell, the descent into chaos. It's like, you could stay there that's how you can that's one way you can ruin your life you can stay there with drugs you can stay there just out of habit you can you can just stay there out of resentment like you can like a a way that you could have just taken it was instead of understanding and being like ah shit you know what I never was that good at math or I wasn't a fan of that or like I don't want to learn a bunch of words that I'm never going to use you know what I mean like <laughs> instead of instead of being like <laughs> instead of just being like yeah that's not my skill set you could also just be like well, the system's broken. and It's just taking me down. Yeah. Fuck them. This world's bullshit. Right. And like you can just hold it against the judge itself and you can say, no, 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 you're wrong. I should, I'm still great. I'm going to hold on to this identity. I'm going to hold on to who I think I am. And it's, it's, because you only have two options when you get feedback like that, right? Like either your idea of who you were was wrong or the feedback's wrong. If you choose the feedback to be right, it's like okay, well, I need to adapt to this feedback now. There's new information I need to integrate. If you want, and you know, some, and both can be the case. You know, it might just be some bully that tells you you're stupid. You shouldn't just buy into that and you know think you're <laughs> stupid. Like you should be like, mm, no, like I'm not going to take your opinion. Yeah, right, like, that's, right. that's bad info. But those are the two the two methods we can take. And when you're down into that morning chaotic spin, the reason we look at tv shows or things that make us comfortable is because they also give us hero myths they give they give us behavior templates that we that might help us shape a new goal right right yes so like a lot of people play like a lot of you know people in our generation and younger will play video games why it's like well because they're going back out into an adventure it's a simulation of going out into an adventure going into danger from the safety of our own home while we're eating our ice cream crying and then being like okay you know what like the, the the ideal, is that you use that as a template to be like, all right, you know what? I can't just sit here. I need now, to go. I need to take something else on.
0: Now I do have to touch upon that, the the, uh, the video games, because when you're in the period of mourning, I think that there is simulated adventures, and then there's real adventures. And look, I, I'm I'm guilty of also playing a little too much video games here and there, or engaging in that stuff. But I'm always aware that when I'm playing video games. I'm engaging in a simulated mountain. I know that this mountain is not a good mountain for me to be climbing right now. I might need to just distract myself because there's internal pain going on. And this simulated world is sedating me and and just keeping the emotions at bay. But in the back of my mind, I know that that video game is a simulated mountain, Uh, you know, unless you're some kind of these YouTube professional gamers or whatever, and maybe they're in a different class altogether. But for the average person who just likes to waste time playing video games, you're on a simulated mountain and you need to get off the simulated mountain and you owe it to yourself to go out into the world and find a real mountain to climb. And I think that's the danger of our generation is that we have become completely lost in the simulated mountains and we're not actually doing the hard work of finding real mountains to climb.
1: Yeah. And I guess to some extent I'd push back because on, on one end, I do, I do agree, right? Like gaming addiction is obviously a big thing and it's, it's quite obvious why games can be quite addicting, right? Cause there's a simulation of the challenge of life without the dangers of its prices. Right. So it's like, it's quite, it's literally a practice round. Like you're, you're, you're dry running, challenges in life as in like in in a very abstract, low resolution form. So like you can look at it like whenever you hit a boss battle, it's like, okay, well, what are you gonna do when really hard problems come your way? How should you handle them? It's like, well, you take all the weapons or experience or everything else that you've attained and you put all of it into this one big problem. It's like, okay, well, you're learning all that from the game. However, if all you're ever doing is running the simulation, and never actually applying the lessons you're learning from that simulation, then yeah, it can become very problematic. Like it can become a very big issue. But I will push back on some aspects, for example, just because of how the times nowadays. So for example, something that I've realized is I've become real good friends with an old friend of mine that I hadn't talked to since high school. And all we play, like, and the only time I ever really talked to him is doing this playing like uh, apex legends, which is essentially just a free for all game arena. <laughs> and I, I couldn't, I, for a long time, I was like, man, why do I, why do I?" like, I started thinking about, it, I was like, I actually talked to him about more things than I talked to anyone else about. Like I get more personal and more intimate with him than anyone else. And I was like, why is that? And then what I realized, I'm like, well, if game, if this game's a simulation was a simulation of, and I'm like mm. hunting. Right. It's like, because the map is so big, me and him are running around. We have to share resources. That's something I learned is like, at first I would just grab all the resources, all the best ones for me. And eventually I realized like, well, if I do that, he just keeps dying because he doesn't have anything to work with. So it kind of forced me to be like, ah, yeah, he's actually better at this weapon. He's better at these things. I need to kind of share. And more importantly, it's like, I need to also cover him and back him up. And I, I found, especially for men, it was a very easy way to bond because- most men tend to kind of be like there's a study once of like how how boys versus girls uh share intimate moments and girls will like sit right in front of each other look that in the eye talk and like really try to empathize with each other and boys will do anything else and not be they'll be right <laughs> yes. next to each other no eye contact but they'll be talking about really intimate things so for men and for boys it seems to be much more a matter of we're doing something together and because both of us are being useful to each other that's what makes me trust you and that's what makes you trust me it's like we can count on each other because we're doing something together whereas for for girls it's much more direct intimacy like hey i like you i want to know about you and for me what i realized i'm like oh we're basically simulating going on a hunt and i'm talking to him and we're kind of bantering and then every now and then it's like oh shit, stop it's like you see that guy
0: okay okay let's just sneak
1: up on him, right and it, it, like it's, it's this whole process of like the hunt the excitement of the hunt and then the teamwork between it that that's built a bond that i don't even have in real life well i have in real life but like i i, I built it through simulation
0: so thinking about this this idea of video games I, I guess my experience with video games has been a lot different because i'm a huge rpg kind of person and for those who don't know RPGs are very, very solo activities like it's, it's a one player game and it's usually a 40 to 60 hour time commitment of just by yourself time. And that like when you beat an RPG, you really have you, you see the credits, but then you say to yourself at the end of it, well, what do I really have to show for myself like I beat this game and and it was enjoyable, but I don't, I don't get a degree in, in Final Fantasy seven. Like there's no, there's no diploma that I can hang up with that. And going back to the example with, with your game playing where you're playing these uh, multi multi-universe games, Roger, where you're interacting with other people. I, I think that that is positive. I, I think it's a, a a net positive that you're interacting, especially that male energy that's going on of, of, of the simulation of hunting and, Accomplishing something together, and I think that that can lead to a very positive dopamine rush, and I think it can also lead to some intimate conversations. And because you're distracted hunting some some wild like animal in the game or or or, or competing against another team, it allows men to kind of. Uh, put, you know, uh, lower their guard a bit because they're able to kind of talk about something very intimate because there's an external stimuli that's, that's providing like a form of distraction. And it's not like girls just looking at each other and crying and, and hugging each other. However, Roger, I'll ask you this. When you're playing these games, would it perhaps be like wise at some point, And maybe this guy doesn't live close to you anymore and this is impossible. But when you're playing these games, at what point should men just say to each other, hey dude, do you wanna stop playing this game and let's go build a website together? Or hey dude, like, why don't we start that band together? So I'm, just, I'm thinking that like we have the, the, this male space of men playing video games and there's great awesome things going on. I'm wondering, when is the threshold where you put down the controller and actually take initiative with your male friends and build something in the, in the real world? You say, hey guys, it's awesome climbing this virtual mountain with you. We've bonded a lot. Let's go ahead and bond over a real mountain now.
1: Yeah. So, personally, in in my in my situation, yeah, it, it's uh, he lives back home, so he's sure. quite far away. But I I also just think it's it's a little bit different nowadays. I mean, even just with the COVID situation at all, at yeah, all right? Well, but yeah. I I also think. to some extent there is that still that danger because it is safer than it's easier than hunting. It's easier than that, right? Like when you're hunting, you still have to go out there. It's still physical effort to like do this. It's like me sitting on my couch, doing eating all the things that I shouldn't be eating while doing this in the comfort and you know, the most comfortable way I could do it. Yeah. There's still going to be a big appeal to just hang out like that most of the time. But I also feel I I would give the counter argument, and this isn't necessarily an argument that what they're doing is good or doing that is good, but rather that why, what is it that should make them take the virtual, the real mountain, if the real mountain is meant to only, like most of them, for example, like, like, because I'm trying to think of what real mountain is worth them building their friendship better than. I'll give you an example.
0: I think that the Beatles, for example, they were all friends with one another. And obviously there were no video games and any of that stuff. But I wonder, I'm like if the Beatles had gotten stuck in a virtual fantasy game, would they ever have become the Beatles? They may have just mm-hmm. they may have just like been super tight and super cool playing a virtual game and they would never have gotten together in someone's basement and started practicing music. So right. that's kind of like the fear that I have that if if these men don't and maybe the video game is the meeting platform where you meet guys and then you form something. But there has to be a point where it's like, guys, let's put down the controller and build a band or build something together that's going to allow us to bond in an even more genuine and authentic way.
1: No, yeah, I I definitely think that. Well, if anything, I think I think the biggest danger, and I guess we're getting a little bit off topic here, but I think this is this is relevant for our topic. The biggest danger now is game design a lot of games like you mentioned rpg a lot of games have a very big incentive to just use psychological traps to get people to get addicted to using them yes so for example in that apex game that i'm talking about there's a mechanic called the loot box right and a lot of games use this and there's been several bills that tried to get rid of them because essentially the mechanics of those is a slot machine it's wow. the exact same dynamics. So you play the game for some amount of time and it'll give you this little box. And then you click on the box and it lights up, makes all this noise. It's, it's, you basically just needs the ding, 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 right? <laughs> and, then, and then drops three random items. And those ra- items are like, it lets you know, are ranked on rarity and how valuable they should intrinsically be. And then if you run out of those, you can buy more using real money which is how a lot why a lot of these games are free to play is because that's how they exploit certain people who are who buy into that hype and then spend real money to attain aesthetic features of the game right like so for me the fact that that's one of the main motivating factors can really hinder drive to get out of that fake that fake sense of progress, right? Yes. Like if, if the game is designed to keep you on there most of the time, then there's not a lot of incentive for them to push communal or team effort that would build a relationship that might make you even see, see like for you, it's like, oh, jumping into something, but like even just jumping into a different game is already detrimental to that game designer, right? right. So they want to keep you on their game as long as possible. Mm. So like, I think that's the bigger danger and it's not just, in video games, it's in social media, it's on YouTube, it's on every platform. Like we're now in the economy of attention, right? Like attention is the commodity. That's what everyone's trying to market, even this podcast, right? Like we're all trying to commodify someone's attention and say, Hey, watch us because we have something to say, or because you say being here, gives us money or because you here makes somebody some value somewhere. And now the, the the consumers become the actual product, which is the the weird dynamic that our new system is starting to get to in the emer- information age.
0: You know, I actually I think what you just said actually pertains perfectly to our conversation because people procrastinate under the guise of watching something and, and being a consumer of it, and. I, you know, obviously we all need to watch things and we all need to read things and see things. And there are some YouTube videos that will help you, but I think that we have to be extremely mindful of what we're consuming at all times. And we must question, we have to always question in ourselves, am I, are my eyes being exploited by this person? Is this person exploiting my eyes and ears so that their viewers can, can go up or that they are ad revenue? Can increase, and I think that when we start being, we start looking at the ulterior motives of, of of why people are trying to suck us into things. We then can take ownership over that time. And the other thing I want to mention is this idea that sometimes we need to stop being consumers and start being producers. Uh, I, I think that this this is a great liberating force in, for many people because yes, you need to read a lot, yes, you need to watch a lot, yes, you need to be knowledgeable. You don't want to be you you don't want to be the ignoramus who stands on top of the rock and says everyone follow me. You, you want to make sure that you've got your facts in order. But at some point, the Beatles just took a chance and said, hey, let's start producing some music. We've listened to enough records and we have an idea of what good music sounds like. Let's just take, let's give it a shot.
1: Yeah, and I, I do agree. I, I, I think the, I guess the biggest difficulty here is, and I think we were talking about this beforehand, was you can write a novel. That doesn't mean anyone's going to read it.
0: Yeah, right. 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 So like,
1: so like, I, I definitely agree that being creative in, in the literal sense of creating something is a natural and intrinsically human thing. But I think so much of us has been taught that, that that idea of creation is valued only within the social and not within the, the personal. So like, yes, rather than, you know, it should be a matter, we should be creative for the sake of being creative. I think because we're surrounded by everything that everyone that is creative, or at least the people we see as most successfully being creative, that society values, right? Like I have a, a idea of a novel. I'm not a writer. I don't write good. I, ver- I rarely write at all. But I do have a decent story that I think would be pretty cool and interesting to tell. All right, I put that into a novel. Now, how am I supposed to feel about this? Mm-hmm. Was this just a complete waste of time for like, however many months or years I put into this? Or was this well worth the time? And then the next question is like, well, who's the judge of that? Should it be me? Or should it be everyone else? It's like, I, because, and, and you can see both sides, right? Like, it's like, if I just use my own judgment as that, it's like, well, then no matter what you wrote, you could have just typed up nothing and it would have been good because you you yourself are going to judge that that's a good thing. But then society is like, you could have written a masterpiece and if society's blind to it, then, you know, you, you, have, you have, they both have costs. Right. right. That choice.
0: I think though, to answer your question, I'm going to attempt to at least answer your question. I think you owe it to yourself first. And- what I mean by that is don't write garbage. Don't just like give a half-ass effort and be like, yeah, I wrote this thing and and no one liked it. Put in full effort. And as long as you know that when you wrote that novel, I gave 110% into that bad boy. And, and that's a part of me. Then I think whether it's a commercial success or whether it's a complete failure, you at least know to yourself, like, Hey, I went out there and I think this idea of social rejection prevents us from doing things. I think that's the most scariest thing in the world is that we're going to create a painting, a novel or some other piece of art and people are going to reject us and be like, man, that sucks, dude. Just you suck. And that's going to, and again, it goes back to what we said earlier about your identity being crushed. A funny story or an intro, an inspirational story rather would be a, uh, R. R. Martin, uh, the guy who did uh, Game right. of Thrones, his first novel was a complete bomb, or I think maybe a second novel, one of his novels, completely bombed and it tanked, and 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 he could have at that point said, "Yeah, man, like uh, this is this is not for me. I'm not a writer, or or like this. I wasted my time." But I think he had a much more positive outlook where he was like okay, the genre that I was writing in probably wasn't the best or that wasn't the best thing that I, I did right there. I gave maximum effort, but probably I was speaking to a very niche audience, and that's why this book didn't take off. And then because he had that kind of growth mindset of like, let me try something else that's extremely risky, like creating Game of Thrones, eventually, by, by sheer probability, eventually he landed on the, on the dragon that <laughs> took him to, to new heights.
1: Right. No, yeah, and and it's—I mean—that is the case, right? Like, only the people that don't accept failure as the end are the people that actually are successful. So that, but that also doesn't necessitate that if you just keep trying, you'll reach success. But it's just like if you don't keep trying, you'll never even know if you could. Yes, yes. Uh, so, so I I definitely think that I I guess I'm more am saying rather than framing it in the sense of uh, like like using George R. R. Martin as an example or anything. I think it's more a matter of like the first thing you were talking about, about being able to write, for example, for me, I'd say being able to write a novel that if I ever had kids, I could give it to them. Right. And then they could read it and they could see a part of me at a different part of my life. Hmm. Right. And maybe they, they're not even interested in that. Right. I'll just be like, Hey, just keep this book. Just give it to whoever is interested if anyone is, and maybe no one ever will be, but that that's now a part of me that, you know, it gets passed down, but I, I do think that like that big fear of like well if no one else cares then therefore it's not worth it right is a big is a big hindrance to a lot of people trying to be creative like for me I, I love I love to draw and to paint I am not good at it by any metric of anyone's right it's like but I enjoy it and I like I enjoy making random like abstract paintings and putting paint on canvas that gives me a weird feeling and may not give anyone else that feeling but I'm like I don't care I like it like that's it's for me like I made this for me not for you so I'm okay with this yes
0: Um, that's actually another thing that I my my girlfriend is actually a a fairly she can draw she at least has mm -hmm. an artistic eye to her but she was oh well she was like no this isn't that good I need to I need to take some formal classes and I'm like okay, you can do all those things and take formal classes. But I'm like, why don't you just draw a little bit for yourself? And this was kind of one of the arguments that I was making. I'm like, who cares if the people on the outside give two craps about like, maybe the outside world will think that you're drawing is very primitive and very basic, you owe it to yourself to keep drawing because you enjoy it and it brings you pleasure. And in some way, it's, it's raising your self-esteem and it's, it's raising something about you that you're, that you're, that you're good at. And I, I think that that idea in most people of, well, if it's not going to be a commercial success, if it's not going to be universally embraced by the outside world, therefore, I should not do it at all. And I think that's a huge mistake.
1: Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. But I, I also understand why there's a pool for that, right? To some extent, it's like, well, how are you supposed to get better if you don't take the criticism that everyone else is giving you, right? So like if someone's telling you like, this is not, like you should try anything but this, you're horrible at this, you know, to some extent, it, it, it goes back to the, to like the GRE thing, right? Yeah. You can either accept the feedback or, or reject the feedback. To some extent, when society tells you, it's like, yeah, your paintings aren't good, your drawings aren't good enough it's like, that's feedback. Now you can take it or you can leave it, but both of them have drastic consequences as to whether you choose to, as to whether how you see yourself and whether you choose to continue in that path.
0: I will, I will add a little asterisk to that though. I think you have to be a good connoisseur of criticism because if somebody says to you that sucks and just walks away, that doesn't really help you. And I, I don't really value that kind of criticism, but. If someone says that sucks, you need to have a little bit more dark color over here and you need to splash this oil over there. And they actually give you pointers that are going to get you in the right direction. That's criticism I like. And I think that we need to sort out between, man, that sucks, don't even think about being a painter, or yeah, this needs a lot of work. Here is a few things you could improve upon. And I I think that we as a society and, and we as people need to kind of sort between Criticism that's legit and coming from an awesome place that's going to improve you and criticism that's just trying to demoralize you and make you quit on everything you try.
1: No, That, that, that is a very good point because like, like we mentioned about that bully, if the bully just comes in and just tells <laughs> you you're, you're terrible at this, you probably shouldn't listen. But I, I guess my, next, my question for you would then be, is there criticism? How can there be criticism given to you that is as genuine as they can be? But it's also trying to convey the fact that your time, maybe you spent better somewhere else. Okay, like, like like someone who's a stand-up comedian and just th- doesn't have that that sense of humor, and really, like you could tell, would really struggle to develop it, or it would be, or just, I mean, I guess something that's more restrictive is you know, someone who's just not very fast, but wants to be an Olympic athlete. And you're like, look, man, <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen for you. <laughs> like, it's like, I don't know how to tell you this. Cause I think you probably do have a lot of other potentials. This one might not be the one you want to, you know, completely put all your eggs in one basket for. And okay. I think that's, that's the, that's the danger of feedback. is like, sometimes you should listen to that feedback fully and be like, you're right. I've been wasting my time. I, there's gotta be something I'm better at.
0: Um, So this is the way I would approach it. Let's use the example of the stand up comedian. So if it's your first week of stand up comedy and you really suck, then I would be looking more towards the criticism of like, how do I get funnier? How, How do I make my jokes better? And I think when you're first trying something out, ignore all the criticism that just flat out tells you to quit and do something else. Now, if you've been a stand-up comedian for five years and you still can't crack a joke and people are still not laughing, then it's time to start listening to the, pe- the naysayers who are saying, hey, look, I think your talents are better spent somewhere else. So I think it's all, it's a question of duration. So When you're starting something out initially, listen to the criticism that's trying to get you to improve, and then after a year or two years and you're not going anywhere, then you ought to listen to the the doubters, so to speak. How
1: about this? Would you agree, rather than duration, because I feel like some people can just kind of half-ass it the whole way and never really improve? Cause I'm trying to think of similar to the example that you said about the GRE where like the GRE was like, you could have just kept holding on to your own identity and beliefs, but you're like, okay, no, like I, I need to aim at something, something else. Right. And I think something that you pointed out was really vital here was you said, and it was the best I could give. Right. Yeah. In the sense of like, yo, like I was putting in all the work I could put in for this thing. And then I still hit that wall. And at that point I'm like, yeah, my time's probably better spent somewhere else than trying to figure out how to climb this thing that I'm already not, I don't, I don't have the resources that you will need. So there has to be something I'm better at than this. I was gonna say maybe like that, where for the comedian, where it's like, if you feel like you have done everything that you possibly could to become the best comedian you can be, and it's still not getting any of the results, then at that point, some of the naysayers may have some points.
0: I I would agree with that. Um, And that duration could vary. I I would say like, you got to give it at least six months, like like at least least half a year. And then you you got to be realistic
1: with the attempt. Yeah. You have to
0: be realistic with the, with the attempt and you have to get to a point of like, like I really, really, really gave this my absolute all. And you have to, you have to be able to, I call it being able to sleep well at night. Like when you have tried something and failed at it, you can sleep well at night. Just a fun fact. I think Joe Rogan said he sucked at comedy for five years (laughs) and he kept on going. And I'm like, Jesus, man, like, 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 I'll be honest. I would have listened to the naysayers like, like after, after, after like seven months or something, but to go five years of just negative criticism and then still, fight through, through the tornado. That's, that's something. That's something. I,
1: have, I have massive respect for anyone who can do stand-up because, because <laughs> it requires exactly that. Like you have to stand up in front of strangers you've never met and then say something that's pushing the limit or the edge of someone's comfort far enough so that it makes them laugh because that's what a joke is. It's something novel, right? So like the twist or something novel, but not okay. so far that it's, it goes too far or violates some sense. And you're constantly guesstimating that every night with people you can't see and probably don't know yeah and I I like and then and then most of the time especially when you first start you're just bombing like you're bombing like I I love going to open mic night um here in DC and yeah like because I actually really appreciate the art as an art as like these kids get up there and they're like, all right, here we go. And they'll like shoot, shoot out like a couple of jokes. And like most of them, I'm like, I don't know about all those guys. And then every now and then you'll hit like a golden one and you're like, God, that, that was a really good joke. The rest of them were terrible. And you can see them being like, okay, that one worked. That one worked. This one did it. Okay. And then like, they're, they're kind of shaping this out, but it's, it's, it takes a lot of guts because it takes you having to prune out all the bad things that make you not a good comedian like painfully of yes. like everyone just looking at you deadpan and being like that that wasn't funny we know you were trying to be funny that was not funny
0: <laughs> yeah no, not to derail us too much but i can tell a good comedian from a bad comedian because i i've i used to go uh to the uh, lower west side and see live comedy all the time It was one of my favorite things before COVID hit and a good comedian I will, see, I will come back a year later. I'll see the same guy. I may not remember their name, but I remember the face. And they got all new jokes, all new jokes, a totally different setup. And then I've seen comedians who are doing the same act verbatim, word for word, same wow. punchlines that they did a year ago. And that's, that's an example of not putting in full effort. Like, that, you should totally have a new act every year. Like, there's no excuse for having the same act year after year.
1: That's a perfect example of the Jungian cycle of someone becoming the savior and refusing to sacrifice. Yes. Right. They're like, I've mastered this set. I can deliver it. It always gets a laugh. I've mastered it. It's like, okay, make a new one. Well, no, if I make a new one, I have to start all the way at the bottom and slowly struggle my way back up. And that's going to, that's going to burn. That's going to hurt. And I feel so good when I'm getting all this, when it's like the solid reliable one. But like you said, the more that goes on, first time it's going to make you, you know, it's going to make you laugh. The second time you're going to be like, ah, okay, well, I already saw that set. But, yeah. Okay. And then by the third time, you're like, oh, come on, man. Like, you don't got nothing new. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> like, like I already saw this. It's like, you've already, you already shown that you yeah. got this, this whole thing down. Try something new. Like, surprise me. That's the whole point of, of comedy. It's like, I want you to surprise me.
0: Uh, yeah, like, I, least, I think that's a perfect. And at least like, at least like one, one small thing that they could do is that over the course of the year, if they added one new joke to their set, each time they went up within a year, they would have a whole new set. So it's not a question of like taking your original set and just throwing in the garbage. It's like, okay, I'm going to replace this joke with that joke and then you gradually do it and then you have a whole you've just organically grown a whole new set. I mean, who am I to say? I'm not a comedian. Yeah, I, I was going to
1: say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you get, you get just one of those jokes that actually works and lands and then fine tuning it to like its timing and precision. Like that's a that's a lot of nights of a lot of people looking at you with blank stares and just Yeah, going, uh, yeah. I don't know about that one, yeah. man. <laughs> but, <laughs> Definitely. I mean, Kind of wanting, wanting to bring us back to the to procrastination point because I think we have really pinned down what a good goal is and why when and you should and shouldn't abandon it so therefore how since we know that and we know that goal and we know how far you should commit to it right like if you're going to commit to something to an actual goal commit yourself to the point where you're giving it everything you got and then if it's still not working, then maybe it's time to consider, all right, maybe there's alternatives or something else, right? And and that's still a maybe, right? Like, if this is genuinely your life passion, you're like, I'm gonna hammer this square, this square peg into this round circle, no matter what, <laughs> like, like, it's your life. Like, plenty of people have succeeded like that. Some of the, the most successful people are like that. We're like, no, no, everyone <laughs> literally told me I was stupid for doing this. And guess what? I did it, right? Like, so it's like, all right, it definitely can happen. But um, so we have that. How do we get how do you get yourself to actually try? I think, for example, let's say I'm a startup comedian, or not, let's say I'm not even a comedian yet. I just always wanted to be a comedian. Yeah. I want to get that action going. I have the goal. You know, goal is let's say like having my own Netflix special, right? Some super lofty. Sure. Okay. But first, before I can get that goal, I need to get myself recognized before I can get that goal. So the first one, first level, first tier goal, which I guess would be a a good advice for goals is tier them. Never have just one giant goal and like not have any goals on how you're going to get there. So like Netflix goal. I was like, all right, well, first I got to get on, I get something on YouTube and (laughs) it's like, all right, well, how do I get that? Well, first I'd have to get recognized and get a couple set paid gigs at least. So like if people start paying you for your jokes, maybe that's a good sign. It's like, all right, well, before that, I need to actually get a material and make a set. It's like, all right, how do I get that? It's like, well, open mic night showing up. All right, well, what do I do for my first open mic night? Now that even just that first one, you're going to procrastinate a lot. Yeah. So what, what do you, how can we, the there would only be good strategies for taking that on.
0: Okay, this is the only recommendation that I can give here is you have to put down a set or you have to create your first episode of whatever it is and just go in with the mentality and this is counterintuitive actually of I am going to 100% suck at this. My first episode, my first set is going to 100% suck. And I'm going to relish in the, that's not a word, but the suckitude. Like I'm, I'm going to just be 100% Mr. Suck at whatever new thing it is that I am doing. And it's gonna be like that. There's gonna be some dark thunderstorms over me for quite some time but I'm gonna just have fun with it. I'm gonna laugh at myself. So I think if you have this mentality of like, there's gonna be some really dark thunder clouds over me, but I'm going to just allow myself to get drenched in the rain and just be like, yes, like the rain is is soaking my shirt, it's soaking my shoes. I'm becoming completely drenched in this rain of failure. And if you have that mentality of like, I am going to suck, I'm going to be soaking wet for a long time, that's actually what allows you to reach your first dry harbor.
1: That's yeah. That's a beautiful point. And I, I I've actually heard that from several comedians is the idea of like the only good comedians are comedians that enjoy, enjoy bombing. Yes. Right? Like that, like that, like when things are horrible and, you, and you, know, you can look them up, like any fa- any of your favorite comedians just put their name and then bombing and you'll <laughs> you'll see some set that they did where like nothing's going their way. And like, <laughs> there's like a lot of times it's kind of a weird graceful thing where you can tell that no one else is having fun everyone is like oh my god just get off the stage and they're throwing (laughs) jokes and then towards like you can normally tell it's like at first it's like jokes for them and eventually it's like all right no one's playing this game fine i'm gonna play with my i'm gonna play my own game And then they'll start saying jokes almost as though they're telling them to themselves, right? They're cracking themselves up down here and be like, all right, well, that was great. Thank you guys. You know, and like making all these jokes about them bombing and bringing attention to it in some way, but you can see it kind of being the thing where it's like, look, I know this is rough. I'm going to keep going because I need like this experience is going to be in some way, somehow valuable for me, even if right now it doesn't feel like it. So like, I need to like navigate this somehow and, but yeah, I, I think, I think that's a super hard thing. It's a super brave thing, but I also think it's the thing that you need to do. Like, uh, like I would say, even just this podcast, our first podcast was kind of a good example of that where like both me and you were like, well, we'll see how this goes. Let's, yeah. uh,
0: let's
1: <laughs> jump into it. Uh, let's presume this is going to be like the biggest mess of biggest messes. And we'll just, we'll, we'll play it out how it goes. Right. and, I, I... and
0: Yeah. I think that's, you know, like, I I think that that's, that's a good example to live by. And I think there's two types of people. Like we've all at one point or another bumped into something, right? Like we were walking down the street and we weren't paying attention. We bumped into a pole or a fire hydrant or whatever it is. And you have two ways to react in that moment. You could be the kind of person that was like (laughs) laughing at yourself and then look around at the strangers be like, yeah, I totally walked into that one and pick yourself up and keep on moving. Or you could be the person, I'm like, I'm a failure, everyone's laughing at me and and it's so embarrassing. And that, you just stop right there and that's the end of your journey. So I think you have to be that person that can laugh at themselves. And I think the best comedians do that. They, they, They will actually get on the mic and be like, well, I can see I'm putting all of you guys to sleep tonight, you know, like, they can laugh at themselves. And they actually break the fourth wall and acknowledge how badly they suck. And they laugh at themselves. And it's a self defense mechanism. But it's one of the good ones, like a lot of self defense mechanisms are bad. That's actually one of the good ones that's going to keep you keep keep you moving.
1: Yeah, and it it disarms it disarms the crowd. Like I I also seen it when like, there's there's hecklers or things like that that kind of completely disrupt the flow and then if you don't address it if you try to just kind of keep going through your set like yeah it's just gonna like every (laughs) there's that elephant in the room that everyone knows but nobody else is saying anything but like when they directly target and then make like throw a quick joke And then make a joke about the whole disruption that everyone's feeling because what a comedian's job is to say what everyone else is thinking right like yeah that's that's one of the things that they have the ability to do is to say the thing that's socially unacceptable but that all of us were thinking
0: exactly and And and
1: then it's this release that we all get we're like oh god that's so true right like
0: and i love i love self-deprecating humor so i think that um you know and there's actually i think i forgot i think i read something that there's a correlation between being successful and having a self-deprecating sense of humor. Those two, those two things actually go hand in hand because people who can't laugh at themselves don't take any risks because they, they take themselves too seriously that they never leave their room because they're so afraid of failure. But if you have a self-deprecating sense of humor, you can get that pie thrown in your face and, and be a good sport about it.
1: Well, and that's, that's why uh, the trickster figure tends to be, very wise and is in, in in mythologies the trickster tends to also be the one that can tell the truth
0: yes right? yeah. like
1: in in the king's court the gesture is the only one that can't be killed for making fun of the king it's yeah like, why? It's, it's because the gesture is both both beneath the king like he's just he's just a jester he's like he's like <laughs> the lowest rung of the lowest rung but also when he comes at you he can speak a higher truth than anyone else in the place is willing to say but because he's so low, it's, it's kind of like this duality of like, he's, he's manifesting what everyone else is thinking, but at the same time is helps in such contempt that's like, oh, come on, you're going you're gonna to take it out on the gesture. He's supposed to just be doing this weird stuff. And I think it's like when you're talking about being in that full flooding of rain is truly, yeah, manifesting and embracing the trickster, embracing the fact that it's like, look, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm trying to learn. I'm going to piss you guys off. I'm going to disappoint myself. Like this is going to be uncomfortable for everyone, but hopefully next time I'm here, I'll be slightly less of that and a little bit better. And if we do this enough, I'll, you know, I'll work my way out of the stage.
0: I like that. I, I, think, I think the perfect way to leave this conversation off is when it's raining outside, don't bring an umbrella. Just soak up the failure and smile, like, like that song, uh, Singing in the Rain. Singing in right? the rain yeah. <laughs> yeah, Singing in the Rain. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Roger. Wonderful no, thank talk you. as always. This concludes the 19th episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.